Welcome to the latest episode of At The Flicks. Yes, the three old-timers are back with our eclectic mix of news, reviews and rambling discussions on everything movie-related. Boredar for our Welsh listeners. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. On the latter, there is both good news and bad news. This month has seen the release of one of the most acclaimed horror movies of the century, being Hereditary. The bad news is, we won't be talking about it as my two co-presenters refuse to watch it. Hi, my name is Graham, and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. You're right, Jeff. I won't be joining you for Hereditary, as it looks as scary as hell. I saw the trailer, and I had to lie down in a brightly lit room till I stopped shaking. I managed to turn the TV off before the trailer started, Graham. Hi, my name's Neil, and I don't enjoy horror films. I'll happily watch other genres. Jeff might have used his intro for good news and bad news. However, I only have good news for you. Our latest listener figures are in and we certainly have a diverse audience. Lots of listeners in the UK, but in second place is the US. Strangely, we have a large following in LA. Now, I'm not saying that we have listeners in Hollywood, but (laughs) 21 people are listening in the LA area. Apart from that, we have picked up regular listeners in Australia, France, Japan, Latvia, and Jeff's favourite, the Russian Federation. Hey! Russia's, of course, the team I've been supporting during the World Cup. We are now growing our listener base by one or two a day. So hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we should have just over 300 listeners. So thanks very much to all of you. We are working very hard to do better and present more interesting and timely stories. And I hear we have at least one Indian listener. I will have to check out some Bollywood features. As he was, according to our stats, listening on an Indian reservation in Texas, we should assume he'll find Bollywood as incomprehensible as we do. Hey, no problem, Neil. I'll watch more westerns. And there goes that list. (laughs) Jeff there with the diplomacy of Boris Johnson. Graham, any feedback on the last episode? First off, I believe they're called Native Americans these days. Yes. And before Jeff says it, I know Cowboys and Native Americans rolls off the tongue like like the name of a Welsh railway station. But we are in the 21st (laughs) century, so deal with it. Okay then, guys. You find me an instance where John Wayne called them Native Americans, and I will happily follow your example. You'll be telling me next we can't use the word gypsy. (sighs) Romany people... Hang on. How come the comic-reading atheist sci-fi nerd is now the moral compass of this podcast? Because I didn't get in quick enough. (laughs) You're not gone religious, Graham. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to reality and back to last month's feature on cult movies. More good news. Phil Foster backs up your cult movie as a good choice. Thank you. Whilst wondering where on earth Jeff got his obscure one from. Added, he also <laughs> loves My Neighbour Totoro and Howl's Moving Castle. Good choice with Howl's Moving Castle. Did you know there's a Welsh connection there? Howl's Moving Castle put that with the Taffy Wood Movies list, along with an American in Powys, Darlem for Merthyr and Treforest Gump. And I can't use the word gypsy, and yet you've been racist there. Because <laughs> <laughs> these are Welsh people making these up. <laughs> I'm just reading them. You are funny, Neil, but don't give up your day job. Graham, back to you and reporting on Phil's comments. Phil also makes a very informed point about cult films coming from top directors at or near the start of their career. Films such as Barton Fink, 
by the Coen brothers, Pie from Darren Aronofsky, and Dazed and Confused by Richard Linklater. Perhaps this is something we can explore further when we revisit cult movies in the future. Jeff, I see that you're fidgeting in your seat. Do you need the toilet? Or is it just excitement about revealing the answer to last month's movie quiz? Bit of both, Graham. Hit old age at a bit of a run, didn't you, Jeff? Certainly feels like it, Neil. Okay, a recap on the question from last month. Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson have both played this particular real-life character. However, for legal reasons, one of them had to change the name of the character he was playing. Who is this famous real-life person, and in what films did Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson portray him? Okay, let's end that suspense. The answer is Watergate reporter (laughs) Carl Bernstein. What suspense? (laughs) I'd forgotten this question. I was excited, Graham, that's enough. (laughs) He was portrayed by Dustin Hoffman in All the President's Men and Jack Nicholson in Heartburn. Now, Heartburn, as you both probably know, was based on Nora Ephron's book of the same name and is a slightly fictionalised account of her recently ended marriage to Carl Bernstein. It didn't end happily. As a result, in both book and her film, Miss Ephron changed some of the names. Her husband's character was renamed as Mark Feldman, which in hindsight is very interesting. You see, the real-life deep-throat informant from the Watergate scandal was revealed as Mark Felt. Notice how close that name is? And that cannot have been lost on Nora Ephron. Another exciting quiz follows at the end of the show. Exciting. That would be good. Neil, what's the line-up before that? This month, we have a bit of a change. We don't have a feature. Instead, we have an interview with a former cinema manager who will talk about the changes in cinema over the last quarter of a century. Then, our ever-popular movie news feature, and thankfully no Mel Gibson this month. Thank the Gibson. (laughs) After that, there's the movie review section, where we'll be giving our views on Solo, A Star Wars Story, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and as the Bromley Boys didn't appear locally, probably because it doesn't have a colon in its name, the 50th anniversary reissue of 2001, A Space Odyssey. So it is a science fiction review show. Graham, you must be pleased. Yep, sure. Finally, that fascinating moment only Jeff is waiting for, his challenging movie quiz question. Jeff, could you please set the scene for our first interview? Hello and welcome to a very special At The Flicks feature. Here, for the first time ever, some of your intrepid team, that's Graham and I, will be conducting an interview with a cinema personality. Yes, we'll be speaking to former cinema manager Phil Cook about his time managing the cinema and how that experience changed over the years. I've had the pleasure of knowing Phil for almost 25 years. We first met when he was one of the team of cinema managers and I was reviewing films for a small press magazine. We've been friends and known each other for all that time. So, Phil, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Good morning, Jeff. Now, in my cinema going life, Phil, and it's been a long one, if Neil was here, he would certainly be commenting on that now. I've been a regular film goer and there have been two cinemas that hold a very special place in my heart. One was the White Palace Cinema in Pontypridd, where it all started, and the other was the Cheltenham Odeon. Now, both had one thing in common, and that was a sense of family. 
Was that how you felt about your time working in the Odeon? Did you see that sense of family? Yeah, I think so. I I look back with fondness at those the time I was there. I mean, I started about 1991 and I was there for about 14 years in Cheltenham. There were a lot of changes in the industry going on at the time and that was reflected in the way we worked and the way the operations ran. So it went from being a very stiff, sort of old-fashioned front-of-house formal environment to a very much of a team ethic, everybody working together. And we, we did. We got to know our customers, including your good self. It was a friendly place to work. It was a nice vibe. Maybe I do look back through rose-tinted glasses. It wasn't all great, but generally... It, was, it felt like a nice place to work at a nice time of the film industry. What other special memories do you hold about working there? I think for me, it was a fresh start. I started there as training assistant manager, worked my way up to assistant manager and then eventually senior support manager. Made a lot of friends, but seeing the um, how the film industry, the marketing and film distribution and how that all works was, was quite fascinating. And there were a lot of changes going on at that time because multiplexes were coming in and some of the smaller cinemas were getting swallowed up Odeon got left behind initially but then caught up again and one of the other changes I saw there was to do with the press showings and one that sticks in my mind particularly was the Independence Day screening where after the film you know, we all went into a bar area where there was food and drink and it was just a really good atmosphere. The thing that made me laugh was the um, local UFO society. And I, I was listening to a conversation in the bar and I think you were going around chatting to various people there as well. And the conversation was going, I don't know how they did it. Those sequences in Area 51, how did they get in there and, <laughs> and, and manage to film? Yeah, I think the press screenings were great because, I mean, they, they weren't always made available to us. Trying to get a copy of a film days before we were going to show it or it was released was often quite tricky we used to open the bar and give sandwiches yeah if you give that sort of hospitality and you look after people are going to go away with a good impression anyway sometimes no matter how good or bad the film in the time i was there they became this thing called a talker screening show the film to people and they'll go away and talk about it hopefully in a good light and it still works it works even more now in the 21st century with twitter and all the other formats okay let's just go and look at some of the mechanics of running a cinema so today everything's digital but back when it was proper i mean proper <laughs> film what sort of challenges did that present to you it was always a, a challenge i think i mean the films used to turn up in generally in about three three massive tins so i suppose there's about half an hour 40 minutes of footage on any one piece of film it was took a long time to set it up on the old style projectors so it was a case of lacing the films together adding on the adverts adding on the trailers it was quite an in-depth technical thing not that i ever did it because in during my time in cinema management the one aspect i never ventured into was the technical side because quite simply that was the technician's job so sorry to, to cut in there phil so basically they took these three huge cans they'd open them up and cut them all together and then cut in adverts and trailers into it well, yeah if they dropped one of those that would have been a nightmare wouldn't it if that did happen they probably wouldn't have told us because <laughs> yeah i think the projectionists tended to live in their own little worlds and when things did go wrong they could blag it if a film went on late or it went on upside down and these things did happen they always had that sense of power because they knew that we didn't really understand the technical side and of course that's where the industry's changed because nowadays the managers they actually press the button or whatever needs to be to show the film when things went wrong me as front of house duty manager would be at the mercy of the the baying public so i was the one who would get it in the neck and have to explain to people why their film didn't show or why it was scratched or why it was upside down or why it was whatever and it was quite labor intensive and it was quite skilled so i did have a lot of respect for the technicians i i, I would agree completely with that 
And I think one of the biggest problems that, that I see on this now is if when you had film, it failed, you had a technical consultant there on hand who would sort it. Cinemas now don't have that. Yes, these people know how to press the buttons and are not selling them short. You know, they've got to get all that set up and, and play in. But if it fails, their main option is turn it off, turn it back on again. <laughs> That's uh, true. Moving on. One of the things with the Cheltenham Odeon was the building that it was based in. It was a lovely old building. And I remember one time, we were sorting out the cleaning up of the outside of the building. And during that cleanup, the mural that was on the front came more into view. And I believe that caused a few problems at the time, didn't it? Yeah, this was, I reckon it must have been about 1997. It was about the time when the Cheltenham Odeon underwent its last development. I think it had already gone to seven screens, but it was being rebranded. But, you know, in its day, it was a beautiful cinema. It I was. Built in about 1933, with these beautiful dancing nymphs on the front of the facade. Yeah, so what happened is the um, there was some painting and decorating going on, and apparently some of the painters enhanced some of the attributes, should we say, of the lovely dancing nymphs on the outside of the building. So these beautiful dancing ladies... But they, they, they were shown in all their glory. They were being shown in all their glory, yes. Yeah. So painters had deliberately touched up certain areas of the ladies. So, <laughs> now, I wasn't initially aware of this, and most people, to the naked eye, naked being quite an appropriate term, wouldn't have noticed it. But what happened is somebody who had stopped at the traffic lights outside the Odeon had seen it and complained. And the local paper, the Gloucester Echo, contacted and I had a chat. We were chatting on the phone about this situation. I was limited to what I could comment on, really. I had to refer to our press department. But I thought, no, I can take this. I can handle this. Talked about the history of the cinema. I talked about the dancing nymphs. Yes, certain parts of their bodies had been enhanced by these painters, which is a bit naughty, but hadn't done any harm. I posed photos outside the cinema. In between the two nymphs? In, with the nymphs in the background. Okay. And thought nothing of it. And then the next day, the um, Gloucester Echo went to print with the head Headline: Odeon Cinema in Porn Parlor Row, <laughs> <laughs> and um, there I was posing with a big cheesy grin on my face and a pink tie in front of the cinema, and I'd been stitched up a little bit, you know. It was um, everyone took it great in great spirit actually because we hadn't been told that this gentleman he had actually said to the Echo that it looked like a porn parlor. Um, I don't know what sort of porn parlor he visits, I don't know, but I hadn't been told that by the Echo, so I was a little bit stitched up. At the end of the day, it was all good, harmless publicity. Yeah. Most people on the road should be looking at the lights, but he was probably just looking at the red one. Um, <laughs> what happened to the murals? Because the building has unfortunately now gone. I was always of the belief that that facade had to stay there because it had listed status. But we found it. We found it. Ah, <laughs> oh, right, yeah, okay. It, it is in the brewery complex. It's quite a way away from the cinema. But yeah, they've they've done them up. Really quite nice. They're behind uh, a sheet of plastic to keep them away from the elements, but yeah. So they are, they are within public there. view, yeah? Yeah, yeah, they're definitely within oh. public view. And just to reiterate, cleaned up, not touched up. Oh, they're very tasteful. I would love to go and see them again. That's great. So they haven't put bras on them now in the meantime. No, right? no, okay. no, not yet. No. <laughs> Complaints is something I would imagine in the cinema you'd have to deal a lot with. And were there any sort of complaints you ever had to deal with about the films? Most of the complaints we we had weren't weren't about the films itself. It was usually about the prices or the temperature of the fridge or the chair being uncomfortable or somebody making a noise or eating their popcorn too loudly. To be honest, most of the complaints were things that were out of totally out of our control because it was usually other people. But people did complain about the films quite often, quite rightly, about the quality of the film production. But yeah, sometimes people did complain about the film content itself. 
Interestingly, picking up on your point there, I remember a case, and it goes back to what you've just been saying about the mural. When David Cronenberg's crash was shown, I was actually at the cinema at the time, on the first day of release. A member of the local newspaper turned up, waiting outside to see if anybody was going to complain about the film. Now, my understanding is there were no complaints. It was just looking for something controversial so they could publish. I know that comes as a shock with newspapers. (laughs) I think somebody complained about Last of the Mohicans, because I think it was a bit more graphic than they thought it was going to be. It's a very graphic film. Um, Great film. I'll tell you a brief story. There was one film that we didn't show... Now, my manager, Nick Eggington, best manager I've ever worked for. We had a great relationship. I'd never see him get upset or angry about anything movie-wise. But it was suggested that we were going to show a film called Boxing Helena, which is a 1993 production. And anyone who doesn't know Boxing Helena, I think it's about a, a surgeon who falls in love and decides to amputate the lady's arms and legs so she can't escape basically so he can, he's got total control of her it's um, directed by david lynch's uh, daughter i think you need to say no it. more every monday morning we would discuss with our booking department which new films might be available but when boxing helena was suggested as a film that may appear in Cheltenham in the coming weeks i remember nick, nick getting very very irate and saying under no circumstances whatsoever did he want this film <laughs> um because it had had that really bad publicity but um i think the bad publicity is probably warranted i think just for the the subject matter and just the quality of the film the other one i I know he got a bit flustered about was the first austin powers one i think it's the first austin powers yeah um any any film with the title subtitle spy who shagged me he didn't like that very much well it got controversial as well because i unfortunately couldn't get to the press showing after the press showing princess diana was killed and there's a joke in there about prince charles so the whole film had to be returned that joke cut out out of every print then sent back out to the cinema now it's shown complete in austin powers in austin in the first austin powers there's a joke i can't remember how it goes but it's something to do with prince charles oh i expect he hasn't married yet or something like that but at that point in time that week there (laughs) was no way yeah that's right absolutely right but that's that's another that's to be honest, that's when I look back at my memories of 1997, because when Diana died, you know, it was horrendous and it hit the nation, you know, big time and everyone was a bit down. Just before and just after, we had full Monty and Austin um, Powers. Yeah. And they, was, they were sandwiched either side of Diana's unfortunate death. And people needed that lifting up. And those films, those two films, oh, they didn't half lift the nation. It was great. I think those two films, Full Monty and Austin Powers, always have a fond place in people's hearts. Certainly mine, because I remember how it picked people up. Certainly the Full Monty. If you were marked in that film beforehand, say, right, it's about these you know, ex-steel workers who are now jobless, they're going to do a male strip-in. You would have thought, that's a very small audience but that time that humor that essential britishness of that film yeah, absolutely really captured the nation hang on let's not forget there was a lot of pathos in that film i mean it wasn't it, i i loved the film but i thought the, the way they played it and, and and the way the guys interacted with one another because they were going to do something ridiculous i thought it was just a well well put together movie and I, i'm glad to hear i hadn't thought of it in that in that way that it lifted the nation but it's a great movie and and it shouldn't just be seen as a a sort of a a comedy and and stripping exactly right because you know an out and out comedy right austin powers came out around the time that 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 she died but this had that other level to it and i think layers yeah yeah, exactly and 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 you can watch it on so many levels yeah yeah i think that's 
that is a key mark of, of British movies. American movies tend to be very focused on where they're going. British movies, they don't always work, but they have lo- lots of stuff going on and you can pick up on a thread. That's right, know? yeah, because it was a lot of it was about rebuilding relationships, yes. wasn't it? The father, yeah. son, yeah. and um, Mark had his character with his wife because he was a big guy and all this sort yeah. of stuff. It was all about building confidence relationships and things. It, it worked brilliantly, I think. Yeah, but one of the good things, and again, I said about the sense of family I had with that cinema, but it also extended a lot to the audience. One instance was these two old ladies had come in to see Sense and Sensibility. Couldn't get in because it sold out because that is a Cheltenham film and I'll talk about Cheltenham films in a minute. So they bought tickets to go into Casino. Full credit to <laughs> As them. You would. They lasted most of the film before they left, but uh, they give up in the end. But there is that sense, isn't there, with Cheltenham that there's a particular... Cheltenham film and and one that strikes me and I'm sure you've got some suggestions is Tea with Mussolini oh yeah yeah. these sort of films would just get the audiences in absolutely I think people liked British films and there wasn't a lot of films what you call truly British but you know it was that you you had your 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 film with your, your your British lovies and they would always take they would always go down well I'll go back again to the theme that I've had all through this interview is the you know, the Cheltenham Odeon as a family cinema in all senses of that word. Also, you had a number of celebrities that used to use the, the cinema. Do you have any stories, any dealings with any of those? A story I will relate to you. We, we got a call one day from somebody who wanted to bring their children to come and see a film. It was a third party who rang, but they needed this screen to be empty, nobody else there. And we said, well, sorry, we've sold tickets to all the advanced screenings of this, whatever the film was. And they said, OK, would we be able to put on a private screening? We said, yes. They wouldn't say who it is on behalf of. So we were going to charge him as if the whole cinema was full. Fine. Whoever wanted to come was had no problem with the money. They just needed the privacy. It was all being set up and it all fell through. And to this day, we don't know for sure who it was, but we're 99.9% sure it was Madonna because Madonna was in town at that time. And she was trying to get her daughter into the girls' college and she was looking at buying property around. So, And we had, we'd guessed that it might have been. So I was quite excited at the thought of putting on a private screen for Madonna. But, uh, alas, it didn't happen. So Nicholas Parsons is probably the best I can throw at you, I'm afraid, not Madonna. <laughs> no, that's a, the, the one, one, that I, one that I know of was um, you had the first Harry Potter film show. Oh, yeah, in. yeah, that's the point. Yeah, we did. And uh, I believe the cast were filming in Gloucester for the second one. They came across one evening. They did. And the funny thing is, by then, I obviously I must have seen the first one, because I remember the excitement when the first Harry Potter movie came out, and it meant nothing to me, but all the kids came dressed in fancy dress, and you soon got wrapped up on what was going on. So by the time the second one was coming out, I was fully aware who the characters were. Didn't see Daniel Radcliffe, I'm afraid, or any of the other main characters, but the guy who plays Malfoy, I don't know his name, he came, tearing his ticket, and he went to watch a film on screen seven. That's as glamorous as it gets. I do know one of the ushers turned to him and said, you look just like that guy out of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're coming towards the end. Any last words, any other memories you want to throw in before we bring this to a close? One of the, I'll tell you one funny story that made me laugh. I, is one night I was down checking the adverts and trailers for the start of an evening film. It was about 20 past eight. And one of our cleaners suddenly opened the door and walked in with his bike. And he walked around this packed audience and stood between the audience and the screen, looking up at the screen, looking in total bewilderment. I thought, what the hell are you doing? He just walks into the screen with his bike. And he suddenly turned around and walked back out again. What had happened, he liked to drink. And um, he, wherever he used to drink his homemade wine, his wife had thrown him out and he was sleeping in the shed. He'd woken up at 
something like quarter to eight in the shed in his garden, thinking it was quarter to eight in the morning, <laughs> got on his bike and cycled to work because he was late for work for his cleaning shift. And the look on his face, he just walked in, not realising it was the evening, think it was the morning, <laughs> and he walked in, and it was a packed film, the screen set when the main feature is about to go on. There's this silhouette, this guy walking with his bike, <laughs> staring at the screen, and it's because he'd drunk too much elderberry wine and fallen asleep in his shed, and he thought it was time for work. That's one of my my weird, funny memories of working there. But I, I think we've all... to us all. It, it, it does, <laughs> especially Neil, which is why he's not here today. Um, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much, much for your time. Thank you. Come here, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. That was really good. Well done, Phil, Graham and Jeff. Hopefully you'll invite me to the next one, Jeff. OK, now it's time for some movie news. Another film news scoop this month, which means I am thankfully not doing a Mel Gibson update. (laughs) As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, we have almost 100 listeners in the United States, and this news article comes from one of those listeners in Augusta, Georgia. Yes, Neil, home of the Masters Golf Tournament. Yes. Thanks to our roving American reporter, we have an on-set report about the filming of Clint Eastwood's latest film, The Mule. The Mule marks the first time Clint Eastwood is in front of a camera since 2012 and his movie Trouble with the Curve. Aside from giving the main performance, the 88-year-old star will be directing as well. However, in the brief time we were on the set, it seems Mr Eastwood was more focused on his acting. Hey, it's been a while, Clint. The story is loosely based on the story of Leo Sharp, a World War II veteran who in his 80s became a drug mule for the Mexican Sinaloa cartel. When captured at the age of 87, he held the record for the oldest ever drug mule. Let's hope that's not a record Neil tries to break. As Rich coming from a man who is considered too old for a part in going in style. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. Back to the mule. <laughs> For the purpose of this film, Clint Eastwood's character has been renamed Earl Stone. Filming has been taking place on Murray Street in Augusta, Georgia, where our roving reporter watched some of the film as it happened. Also in the cast, but not spotted on the set, are Bradley Cooper and Lawrence Fishburne as DEA special agents. The always excellent Michael Penner, soon to be seen in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Diane Weist, Hannah and her sisters, as Stone's ex-wife and Clint's real-life daughter, Alison, playing his on-screen daughter. Can I just check something there, Graham? That was Hannah and her sisters? Not that famous porn version, Hannah does her sisters. (laughs) Great. 30 seconds into the news and Jeff's doing lesbian incest jokes. Brilliant. I haven't seen it. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say that. (laughs) Given Mr Eastwood's political affiliations, he is a big fan of The Orangeman. It will be interesting as to how the character will be portrayed on screen. We do know that Earl Stone will become more concerned regarding the morality of what he is doing as the story progresses. How this plays out on screen remains to be seen. It's possible, given the speed at which Clint Eastwood works, that this film will be out before the end of the year, which puts it into the awards season. Watch this space for more details and thank you to our American correspondent for this coup. Jeff, over to you and I bet you won't be doing Gibson here. And you'll be right, Graham. This month, I'm going to be looking at the changing style of Liam Neeson. Oh, great. You see what I mean? He gets Liam Neeson, 
And he gives me Mel Gibson every <laughs> bloody month. So. Yeah, this all of this sounds fair to me. Liam Neeson, he's moving away from those Taken-style action films back to the type of dramatic and authority roles he used to play. Already he has the drama Widows completed for director Steve McQueen, which opens in time for the next award season. Now, next month, Liam Neeson will be in Belfast filming Normal People. See, even the title's a move away from those sort of action films. Now, in this film, he will star with Leslie Manville, recently Oscar-nominated for her role in the excellent Phantom Thread. Normal People has an original script from acclaimed Irish playwright Owen McCafferty and will be directed by the team behind the great musical Good Vibrations. In Normal People, the stars will play a couple who have been married for many years and who suddenly find that Miss Manville's character has advanced stage breast cancer. How the couple deal with this is the heart of the movie. Not, I expect, an easy watch, but with Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville in the leads, you can be assured it will be well acted. On a more cheery note, and we need one after that, Mr Neeson will split his time this summer between normal people and something that's got Neil excited, the new Men in Black spin-off, which is currently untitled. This will also be filming in the UK. Details are sparse on this at the moment. I mean, hey, I haven't even got a title. Other than it also stars Chris Hemsworth and it's about the British arm of the famously secret Men in Black organisation. In fact, Graham and Neil, the way you two react to some of my comments, and obviously the sane ones, as most of them are, you two could be on that Men in Black watch list. Jeff, considering some of the insane things you say, you should be on the Orangemen's watch list. Or, or the Orangemen's friends list for some of the other things you say. Hmm, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> Liam Neeson will play the head of the UK branch, leaving most of the action sequences to Mr Hemsworth and whoever stars alongside him. There's a tight schedule on this one as it's due to open in cinemas on May 2019. We will be watching this one closely to find out if it's filming anywhere near us. Anyway, while you rehash reported news, I, like Graham, have another scoop for At The Flicks. There have been reports recently of a big-budget movie filming in Barclay Castle. No one has been allowed to say what the film is or who has been there. Going undercover, I found out that a new version of The Secret Garden has been shooting some scenes there. Undercover? Wow, Neil. You sound like some sort of private eye. Or should I say, dick. Very funny. But at least my story, like Graham's, is original. Well, that is if you don't count the five times Francis Hodgson's Burnett's story has already been filmed. For those who aren't cultured enough to know this story, and I'm looking at you, Jeff, it's a true children's classic. The Secret Garden is set at the turn of the century, much like Jeff, and is about the young Mary, played by Dixie Egeritz, recently seen in Patrick Melrose on HBO. A spoilt ten-year-old who returns to England after the death of her parents in India. Here she becomes the ward of Lord Craven, Colin Firth, and his maid, played by Julie Walters. I understand most of the filming has taken place in Yorkshire, however some of the Indian sequences will be recreated in the splendid grounds of Barclay Castle. Colin Firth has had a very busy 12 months. Apart from filming Mary Poppins Returns, Jeff has listed this one as the big one this Christmas. He has also completed filming on Kursk, about the Kursk Russian submarine disaster, which happens in 2000. 
That one is scheduled to open early next year. Returning to The Secret Garden, this has a big cast in what promises to be one of the big films next summer. Talking big films, let's move on to the movie review section and let's start with Mine. As we announced last month, Neil's review this month was supposed to be The Bromley Boys. However, as that film hasn't opened locally, Neil has instead been able to review the re-release of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, now celebrating its 50th birthday. Fun fact, I was minus one at that time. That comment is as much science fiction as this film. (laughs) For those of you who haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and there may be a few who haven't, the film doesn't follow a traditional narrative structure. Yes, it has the traditional three-act structure. However, each act initially appears as a separate story, which later links together. The screenplay was written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, and was inspired by Clarke's short novel, The Sentinel. Act 1 is the dawn of man, millions of years ago, on the African plain. Our ape ancestors are struggling to survive in a very hostile environment. One morning, they awake to find a featureless black monolith in the middle of their encampment. Just exactly what is its purpose? Act 2 is set in the near future, or I guess for us, an alternative past. Dr. Haywood Floyd, William Sylvester, is sent on a top-secret mission to an American moon base where a strange discovery has been made. Finally, Act 3, which is set 18 months after the moon base incident. The setting is the spaceship Discovery 1 on its mission to explore the moons of Jupiter. However, things do not go as planned for the crew and HAL 9000 computer, which is controlling the spaceship. Neil, I assume you have seen this film before. What were your thoughts, mate? Everybody's seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, haven't they, Graham? Well, after watching the first five minutes, I realised I hadn't. Two hours or so later, my mind is blown. I came out of the cinema and turned to Graham and said, I have about a thousand questions. I thought it was about 2001 questions, (laughs) to be honest, and none of them were directed at me. You're in the gents, Jeff, having made it through the film for once. 2001, as everybody knows, is about a big black stone metal cuboid monolith thingy that changes evolution. In the first act, apes evolve with the use of weapons, having had contact with the monolith. The evolution from apes to man. At one point, a bloke in an ape suit is savaged by an actual puma. All I could think was, no CGI. Who agreed to that? OK, I think I need to break this to you gently, Neil. The film is called 2001. It wasn't bloody made then. Oh, it was actually made in the 60s before CGI. I know that, Jeff. My point is... How many extras agree to be mauled by a real, live puma? In the second act, another is found buried on the moon. The film, in true Kubrick style, takes its time showing off the ideas, and here's where I couldn't quite grasp what I was seeing. The space shuttle, the space station, the international space station at the height of the Cold War. Dr Floyd Skyping his daughter... In the third act, on a manned mission to Jupiter, Hal, the computer controlling the spaceship, plays and beats Dr. Frank Poole, Gary Lockwood, at chess. 30 years after the film, IBM's Deep Blue beat reigning world champion Gary Kasparov. Right, OK, Neil, I'm going to have to stop you there. For the sake of our listeners, if nothing else. This <laughs> oh, is all fairly random and enigmatic. Yeah. Just like that film, 
If you want more on the narrative and how it all fits together, I would strongly suggest reading Arthur C. Clarke's book. It helped me. I'll be the first to admit that I struggle with the narrative. And what the hell? You know, what was it all about when I first saw it? But then I was eight years old, so I suppose mentally that <laughs> does put us on the same level. Yeah. I'm reviewing the film as I saw it. Let's face it, the film gives us enough time to think about these things. And that's a fair point. So let's talk about how this plot structure holds up today. For the first two acts, it is remarkable. The third act is slow, ponderous, and too much is left unexplained. Why does Hal malfunction? Why are the humans so bland? And just what is the strange hotel room about? Graham, any comments on this before we return to Neil and his thoughts on how this film created the iPad? Um, I, I must admit, I had a very different view of the movie, uh, and I'm sorry, Jeff, but I loved every moment of it. I loved the fact that Neil had not seen it before and was still wowed by it 50 years later. Confused is the word. <laughs> uh, right. That's a good one. I, I turned off my critical eye, I must admit. I just sat back and absorbed um, seeing this wonderful movie on the big screen in the wrong aspect ratio, but never mind. I have seen it so many times, and to me, it's like an old familiar friend. I can no longer see the flaws. I, j- I was just very happy to see it again. You two have seen this film many times, and both admitted you have many questions as when you first saw it. What was the ending about? I saw three acts that connect together at the end. What more would you like on narrative? And I can't believe I'm saying this, but oh, that actually is talking. a good question, Neil. Given the enigmatic nature of the film and its examination of human evolution, how did that make you feel? It is a film which I, unlike Graham, believe is dated badly although it tackles very big themes. It's an intellectual, not an emotional journey. How did that impact upon you, Neil? I love the way the evolution from apes to man was explained, the difference being the use of weapons and the intervention of aliens, presumably. Then the next monolith turns up. We have evolved sufficiently to be able to find it. The third act is still a mystery to me. Is it still 2001? Is this the move to AI, the scene in the bedroom? Is that the machines controlling us? I am made of questions. The film drifts along and seemed to want me to look at the awesome tech. My reaction to the whole film was to wonder at Arthur C. Clarke's genius rather than Kubrick's filmmaking. Yeah, you're right. Clarke did all the technical stuff. He was uh, a true futurist. He also predicted the internet and working online in the mid-60s and in the 40s, he predicted communication satellites. Wow. So did IBM create Deep Blue because of this film to see if it winning chess really could be done? Did Apple create the iPad because Frank and Dave used something like one and to watch BBC 12? BBC 12, we have hundreds now, maybe not all BBC, but we have hundreds of stations. Artificial intelligence, the interaction between Hal Douglas Rain and Dr. Dave Bowman. Keir Dahlia after his colleague is killed is really well done and really creepy we're still working on AI though I'm even more reticent now to buy an Amazon Echo the Stargate sequence or rather LSD trip to Jupiter designed by Douglas Trumbull who went on to direct Silent Running and worked on Blade Runner among others was how it made money when it came out hippies flocked to see the film Hal appears to be the only sympathetic character. Dr. Floyd gives the 
dullest motivational speech ever. (laughs) Mike and Dave on the Jupiter mission are perpetually bored and uninteresting. The scientists on the moon are hardly whooping with delight at the amazing discovery. It's easy to criticise a film from 1968. It is slow in places, but maybe we're used to the lightning-fast paces of Marvel and DC. You had to wait till 2010, the book, not the year, to find out why Hal was malfunctioning. As I said earlier, the actors chosen for this film were incredibly bland, with the exception of a brief appearance by Leonard Rossiter. This is a film about the evolution of man. Where's the bloody emotion, Stanley? (laughs) I I thought that was the point. Hal is the only human. Okay, I've given up. Graham, your thoughts on how this film holds up today? Oh, well, right, okay, well, even after 50 years, it's still, to me, is a masterpiece. Yes, it's slow-paced, and there's a lot of mansplaining with the technology, but the effects are still excellent 50 years later. I love that the astronauts had iPads, FaceTime, computer chests, all the monitors were flat hiding the te- the, the the display technology, which was impressive at the time. I remember watching it at the time and just been absolutely blown away. And seeing it on the big screen again was a thrill for me. I'm looking forward to the 100th anniversary. Let's go for 60th, shall we? (laughs) But try as you might, Stanley Kubrick was never interested in emotion. I'll come back to this point. I don't don't disagree, Jeff. I really don't. Yeah, most of his films lack emotion, but I mean, this is a film about space and people who are trained to do one thing. They're not going to be emotional. It's not Love Island on a on a spaceship. It's, you know, it's clinical. It's about the evolution of man and emotion is a key part of being human. And am I right assuming that we're evolving towards the AI rather than being humans? So they slowly get rid of us. So if that is the case, then Hal is the only human. Some of us more than others, Neil. Um, Okay, (laughs) we'll argue on this point all night. I'll see it. Neil, considering all the points we've made, did you still enjoy it? Yes. Hell yes. All right. Now I'll put my hand up. And having been devil's advocate here, I'll say, okay, it is a classic. This and Planet of the Apes are two of the most challenging sci-fi films of their time and it's no wonder they stand up well today and I picked on Planet of the Apes because it was from a year earlier. Did you know the makeup artists for the dancers playing apes were not Oscar nominated because the Academy thought they were real? That's how good they were. It's a good job Harvey wasn't around then, that's all I can say. The second section has one of the most optimistic views of space travel ever. Yes, the Russians and Americans work together, just as they continue to do so now in space as reality. Uh, It's a shame the finale lacks the punch it should have. And if you think I'm being picky... You are being picky. I'll go back to my Planet of the Apes comparison. Get someone who's never seen that original Planet of the Apes film to watch it now. That ending packs an almighty hit to the gut. One of the great twist endings of all time. 2001 just doesn't have that. It's it's enigmatic. It's strange. It's yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't. No, I don't no, think no, that, it, that it's weak. And let's put it to the test. Let's yeah, ask Graham. Is it weak? Our, let's go to our science fiction expert, <laughs> Graham. Which ending affected you the most? Two thousand and one or Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes. Ah, definitely. Okay. Is. Fair enough. Because, because I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. Okay. I don't think. And I don't, And really, as the older I get, I think you're not really meant to understand the third bit. You know. I love this movie. I really don't like the ending. I'm in denial about it because I love the 
two and a half acts that were wonderful. I really wish they'd done something like The End of Contact, the mm. Jodie Foster movie based on the sci-fi book by Carl Sagan. They have a very enigmatic ending, but it leaves you with a sense of mystery rather than confusion. Now, this is something I can agree on. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Contact's a wonderful <laughs> film and a true classic. That's because, yes, it's enigmatic, but it has an emotional heart. OK, enough of that one. It is now time to set the scene for Jeff's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom review, or as I referred to it last time, dinosaur crap. That might turn out to be a prophetic statement. Hardly a prediction, Graham, more of an evaluation based on known facts. <laughs> well, the park is now shut down and the surviving dinosaurs have free range of the island. There's the odd poacher attempting their luck for dino samples, but otherwise left to their own devices. However, they're likely to die out when the volcano on the island starts to erupt. Yes! Oops, sorry, getting ahead of myself there. <laughs> with my views on this one. Yeah. As long as someone doesn't try to save them, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the plot. Claire Deering, Bryce Dallas Howard, who now leads a dinosaur protection group, really? enlists the help of Owen Grady, Chris Pratt, along with funding support from Ben Lockwood, James Cromwell, best known for his performance in Babe. Their aim is to rescue as many species as they can and take them to a new sanctuary where they can live out their lives in peace. So begins a dramatic rescue, but is everything as it seems. Jeff, was I right with my dinosaur crap comment, or is this actually a worthwhile sequel? It's actually a very worthwhile sequel, Neil. In fact, this is the second best film in the series after the original Jurassic Park itself. No. Having a top-rate director and a good script helps. While I admit there are flaws, the odd one or two, which I'll go back to talk about, this is in essence the Empire Strikes Back of the oh, Jurassic yeah. Park movies. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I think of it. No, it was, a t it was terrible. And not a patch on the original Jurassic Park or the sequel... The director is far too good for this movie. The studio have brought in an excellent director to do the middle movie in a franchise trilogy. It's like putting a Michelin star chef in a McDonald's. It's a process, not art. He is not creating, he's simply following orders. More like Dumber and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd of the Jurassic Park movies. You say the more you think about it, the more you think of it. Perhaps you could do that with more films, Jeff. OK, I get you guys didn't like it. To compare it to McDonald's and Dumb and Dumber, not even Dumb and Dumber, these are cheap shots, guys. Although I think the tie-in to the McDino Nuggets is excellent up here, <laughs> and one I'm going to be selling after this podcast. So let's go back to my Empire Strikes Back comment, which will help our listeners understand why I'm right. And you two are wrong. The Empire Strikes Back comment will help no one, Jeff. Let's be serious. Let's see. Like Empire, Obi-Wan, yes. this is two films melded together. A spectacular first half and a more tense, claustrophobic second half. Each complementing the other. The first half deals with the rescue of the dinosaurs. And I think even both of you have to admit that it had its exciting that moments. That was good. Yeah. yeah. Sequences such as the gyrosphere chase... And race to get off the island was standouts. Once the film gets to the house where the dinosaurs are going to be auctioned, the setup is intriguing. However, the payoff less so. The scriptwriters seem to struggle at times with where to take this, and the releasing of the Indoraptor was frankly just 
lazy writing <laughs> and undermined the suspense the director was trying to create. Now, talking of this Indoraptor, this is another Star Wars parallel. The writers seem incapable of letting the dino design aspect of the first Jurassic World go. This is once again another version of the Indominus Rex, scaled down to become a raptor, like the Death Star in Star Wars. Enough already. Just find a way to make the story work. This is just lazy writing. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely agree, and that's the only time in this review I'll say yeah. that. Finally on themes, and having said all that about the script, there are some very funny asides and nods. For example, the first time we see Bryce Dallas Howard, the camera pans down to her high heels, which thankfully she doesn't run around in this time. Scriptwriter Colin Tevero, who of course was the director first time around, clearly hates Orangeman. And he's worked in some interesting asides in the script. For example, both Graham and I laughed at the CNN feed line stating that the president denies the existence of dinosaurs. <laughs> and the bidders of the most dangerous of the dinosaurs were Russian. Trevorrow also has one of his villains utter the line, such a nasty woman, which is again a reference back to Orangeman's comment to Hillary Clinton in one of the TV debates. Oh, yeah. Having watched Jurassic World the night before seeing this, see, I did my homework, lads. Uh, I was struck by how one-dimensional Chris Pratt was in that film. If anything, he's even worse here. It's a bland hero role. He seems capable of solving or battling his way out of any problem without help. For example, the others are stuck in a gyroscope sinking to the bottom of the ocean. No problem. Get them out. Posse of hardened military types are between him and the heroine. Easy. It's like Roger Moore in Moonraker. It's that bad. Yet in contrast, Bryce Dallas Howard brings life to her character, even when saddled with the most ridiculous profession ever, head of a dinosaur protection league. Bryce Dallas Howard also has charisma. That's another difference <laughs> between her and you, Neil. Don't you uh, dare. <laughs> he went there. Also on the plus side... A call-out to the wonderful actors playing the villains. Toby Jones, yep. <laughs> Rafe Spall at his oily best, and the underrated Ted Levine are fantastic and clearly having great fun with their roles. Apart from Mr. Pratt, the only other actor who seems out of place is Jeff Goldblum. Oh, I mean, what on earth was the point of that cameo? I would rather have seen him back as the aged nightclub owner oh, of God, the zoo <laughs> in Thank God It's Friday, fighting to keep a T-Rex out of the disco rather than waste this screen time. Was I right in that we agree about these performances? And I agree that Jeff Goldblum cameo is pointless. However, I found the actual film to be pointless. No iPads, no computer playing chess. So you could have actually shortcut that by saying, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what? The most remarkable thing about this movie is for me is that it manages to make Chris Pratt boring. Oh, yeah. I disagree with both of you about Miss Howard. Um, what happened to the chemistry between Pratt and Howard from the first one? The sparkle between the two of them seems to have vanished. It wasn't there. As I said, I rewatched the first film the night before seeing this. She's good in that. He isn't. Well, OK. Well, I didn't do my homework, obviously. But <laughs> Howard seems to be plodding through this one in her new sensible boots rather than running ridiculously in her high heels like the last movie. The opening scenes where she goes to find Pratt were dull, dull, dull. Pratt delivering his lines like an automaton. Very poor setup. I agree with Neil. I think Pratt was just phoning it in. OK, let's move on 
Now, I'm a big fan of the director, J.A. Bayona. Me too. He manages to bring a humanity and emotion to his films. Completely different to Kubrick as well. <laughs> Just check out The Orphanage and A Monster Calls. Yuri is struggling in that department. In this blockbuster where characters have to perform to certain stereotypes, even where the performances are good, it's difficult to bring out an emotional level. Does, however, get a good performance out of young Isabella Sermon as Daisy. Mr. Bayona has shown with his earlier films how good he is working with children. A lot of the tension of the latter part of the film is based of the, around this young lady, and it generally works. As I said before, yeah, he's a good director, but he's in the wrong job. We get glimpses of his direction in the opening act, and then again in the confined environment of the house, but it, he doesn't have much wiggle room for his creative flair. There, this is direction on rails, not free-flowing art. Of course, none of this would work if the special effects were not up to standard. The key moment in the Jurassic Park world is that moment where Sam Neill and us, the audience, in that very first film, see a plane full of dinosaurs for the first time. It's one of the great moments of cinema. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom doesn't have such a high moment, and that is because we've now come to expect that standard as a norm. Mm. There are spectacular dinosaur battles, and that old T-Rex is wonderfully realised. It's almost like that song in it. I've got that old T-Rex under my skin. Uh, the standout <laughs> moment for me in the film, in regard to special effects, was the scene as the ship pulls away from the island and we see, and Graham, I'm not into the science fiction side of this, I'll look to you to correct me, a brontosaurus slowly engulfed by the toxic fumes from the volcano. It's a wonderful and moving moment. And no barbecue needed as it's then ready-cooked ship into your nearest oh. McDonald's. I think in this area, the film really does come up to the standard you would expect. Yeah, I mean, the special effects are stunning. And to pick on your point about the Jurassic Park, the original one, when the um, and you see the plane of dinosaurs, yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't in the trailer. No. You no. had no idea no. whether they were going to be good, they were going to be bad. And suddenly it's the wonder of seeing yeah. these things. The further you build up to what are they going to look like, etc., was stunning. Really well done. And this one, we had the best set piece yeah. in the blasted trailer, yeah. trying not to swear. <laughs> Well done, Neil. Well done, Neil. <laughs> Tricks of change. <laughs> okay, the, the cinematography was very good um, with Oscar for uh, using the indoor lighting to amplify the sense of confinement and the fact that our heroes are trapped in the house with a monster genetically designed to kill them. I loved all that. Clever stage lighting for the auction and the lush green of the opening scenes on the island. Mind you, how many shots do we need of dinosaurs of some sort, roaring in front of a pretty background. <laughs> lazy writing, or in this case, lazy cinematography. So visually it's great. However, the story, the acting, and the director forced to wear a straight jacket make, for me, it's just a very poor movie. I did not enjoy it. Okay, and this is where I start to fall away here even yep. though i've got the best views <laughs> you know the, you know i've the best views um i suspiciously like somebody i know <laughs> yeah our, our listeners seem to be agreeing with you guys um so from declan uh, his view is this sequel misses a lot making it an average film too many stupid decisions were made by the characters all through the movie and some dramatic moments were just comical Phil Foster also ties in quite nicely. There are two ways to assess Fallen Kingdom. Firstly, you can look at the plot 
and a story and find it woefully short of new or interesting ideas. Secondly, you can look at its ability to create tense moments and thrilling action sequences where it finds some success. Summing up, Phil calls it a crushing disappointment. It's rare I disagree with Phil. Unfortunately, this is one of those times... And clearly I stand alone with my views, like some sort of dinosaur. (laughs) I agree with Phil. Crushing disappointment is a good way to describe it. But really, we're all grown-ups here. We should have known better based on the last movie. I mean, the last movie was terrible, and this one just followed it. So I enjoyed it with all its shortcomings. However, I would accept it's hard to see where they're going to take this for the final part of the Jurassic World trilogy. True, the main scientist villain, played by B.D. Wong, is still alive. But what is there next for him to do? The only thing I can think of is using that technology to create an army of human dinosaur hybrids. Oh, gee, no. Well, let's see, eh? Let's see if I'm right. That's a prediction. <laughs> okay. I'm off down to Ladbrokes now. Other than that, I'm worried they could just repeat themselves. That said, even if the third movie fails, we will always have the second fun Jurassic World which later this year will take pride of place in my Blu-ray collection. And let's be honest, it is a classic when compared to Isle of Dogs. <laughs> I preferred Rampage to Jurassic World. <laughs> um, some elements of this movie went nowhere. Iris the housekeeper sacked with no impact. Why didn't nobody call the coroner when James Cromwell's character died? A massive illegal auction with guests from all over the world all put together in one day the fact that the granddaughter Maisie Lockwood is a human clone where's the payoff for that revelation unless you consider the plot device of her releasing the dinosaurs into northern California as her single purpose in the whole movie why did they need Blue's DNA if they could fully control their new super raptor with you know a laser beam and a noisemaker oh and Blue is the second smartest creature on the planet really I didn't see her do anything smarter than a well trained dog Lassie Flipper and Skippy were all far smarter Okay, up next is our final review. It's Graham's review of Solo, a Star Wars story, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Does this galaxy still have you whinging about superheroes? Yes, but Latvian stick figure animation doesn't exist. Hmm. Anyway, back to the plot. It's a time before Star Wars and even before Rogue One. Here, young Han Solo, played by Alden Ehrenreich, or Han as he's simply known, is struggling to survive on the planet of Corellia. Both he and the love of his young life, Kira, Amelia Clark, from Game of Thrones, are desperate to escape the clutches of the crime syndicate they have been forced to work for since children. Han, as always, has an audacious plan. However, it goes wrong, and only he just about manages to escape Corellia. Years later, as Han plots various ways to return and rescue Kira... He falls in with intergalactic criminal Tobias Beckett, Woody Harrelson, recently so good in three billboards. Beckett has a plan for the heist of the century, of which Hanshear will provide him with all the money he needs. However, like all good heist movies, things do not go according to plan, and there are a few twists along the way. Graham, while this movie sounds exciting, it has had something of a troubled production how has it turned out? Oh, yes, Jeff, it certainly has had a very troubled development. Disney fired the original directors, brought in Ron Howard as a safe pair of hands. 
Howard reshot 80% of the film. It went 200 million over budget and Disney's marketing cocked up the marketing completely, releasing a trailer only a month or so before the release date of the movie. All to end up with a Star Wars movie without the Force. I must admit, I went into this movie with a very low expectations because of the troubled production. I was worried that this movie would suffer the Justice League fate of clumsy editing, uh, rushed special effects, wardrobe mismatch and wig malfunctions. Uh, The fact that this movie actually works as well as it does as a serviceable heist movie is miraculous. Let me just break down this movie into its component parts so you can understand what Howard was trying to salvage. The plot components of this movie are very straightforward. As Jeff laid out, there are only eight main strands to this movie. One, young Han escapes his terrible life as a petty thief. Chase scene. Two, he abandons the love of his life and joins the Imperial Army. Extended chase scene. Three, meets a mentor and teams up with his lifelong friend Chewie. Fight scene. Four, he steals some MacGuffin from a train. The heist scene. Five, the heist goes wrong, as usual, and plan B requires them to make the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Action set piece. Six, gets betrayed by the love of his life. Standard movie trope. Seven, gets away to fight another day. Hooray for Han. Wins eight, and finally, wins the Millennium Falcon from Lando in a rigged card game. Hooray for Han again. The end. Those plot elements mean that this is an action heist movie. Extremely good action set pieces with the Star Wars elements, you know, droids, hyperspace jumps, cantinas and stormtroopers. How could the original directors have screwed that up? It's a caper movie, staple diet for directors since uh, forever. It's not a bad movie. It's not The Empire Strikes Back by any stretch of the imagination. And it's not even as good as Rogue One. But it's not bad. An enjoyable couple of hours. I thought it was fun. Given the problems, the reshoots, Disney's lack of confidence in it, it had the feel of a B-movie. Fun, energetic and better than I thought it was going to be. I agree with you, Graham. All right. I'll be the voice of reason. Here we go. Captain single time. (laughs) It's okay. Let's not get carried away. It's a fun heist Western movie. Definitely Western movie. But as a Star Wars film, it lacks that wow factor. You certainly didn't feel the force in this. (laughs) In fact, this film is going to be a case study of how not to make a market of movie for years to come. (laughs) Hang on, lads. On the plus side, Howard's direction was excellent, considering the time constraints he was working under. I could not see the joints between the stuff that he shot and the 20% that remained from the Lord and Miller stuff. No change in tone or style that I could detect. I mean, I think he did an excellent piece of work. And yes, I've always, I agree. Yeah, and I've always liked Howard. I think he does a competent job here. Um, we'll never know what the Lord and Miller version would have looked like, as I'm sure that footage will never, ever be released. For sure, we know the Paul Bettany scenes were all Ron Howard. And again, they are okay. Ron Howard doesn't stretch the boundaries. And to be fair to him, he never had the time to do so. However, this doesn't come close to some of the films he's made in the past, such as Apollo 13 and Willow. It hung together well. Ron Howard kept his hand solo front and centre and removed extraneous character art. 
Thandie Newton, for example, unfortunately, but that's what he had to do. I, I think Howard did actually. I also thought the cinematography was good as well. Mm, I, I yeah. don't think they changed the cinematographer, uh, Bradford Young. Uh, he's worked on other big budget pieces like uh, Selma and Arrival. Star Wars is a big step up. Really liked his work. Everything looked great. Carilia yep. looked grimy and industrial. The planet where he met Chewie was wet and muddy with a sort of World War One trenches vibe. I, I like the look of the whole movie. Yeah, I agree. And, and so you should when they spend $300 million on the damn thing. Did they initially spend three hundred million? No, no, they reshot. So they reshot a lot of the film, and the and the budget is now close on three hundred million because Ron Howard reshot about eighty percent of the film. So total was three hundred. Three hundred million. million. And so Lord and Miller, and then and then the marketing was almost non-existent, and it's up to three eighty, three hundred eighty million now. Yeah. So it's going to make about the make a more or less it work money like back. It needs to make. It would need to make about five hundred million yeah. to get the profit. Yikes. It's going to have to sell some DVDs, isn't it? Yeah, but we're all skirting around the real issue here, and that issue is hair. <laughs> what? I mean, no, come on, guys. Why on earth is Tandy Newton wearing a Richard Ayoade oh, wig? Oh, I mean, did she lose a bet on set to wear the damn thing? And this is a really beautiful lady. Why was she like that? It just looked ridiculous. And Woody Harrelson. With that hairpiece blowing at impossible angles in some wind tunnels that seemed to be going on, it, it was like Orangeman oh. stepping off Air Force One. I was waiting Again. for that. It felt like a Star Wars film, just like it should. Okay, let let me drag this back a little bit. I liked the acting. Uh, there were rumours all over the internet that Alden Ehrenreich was having problems portraying the swagger of Han Solo. However. I thought his performance was good. A young actor portraying a legend is always going to be very difficult. Mind you, if he needed lessons in swagger, he could have got them from Donald Glover, who plays Lando. I mean, he had loads to spare. <laughs> Amelia Clark was good. I'm not a fan of her portrayal of the Khaleesi in Game um, of Thrones. Bland. You thought she was bland? She yes, was bland. I'm, I'm not a fan. I mean, I thought she, she did you know, good serviceable work. Uh, and I like Woody, Woody Harrelson. I mean, who doesn't like him? He's really good. I mean, I thought the plot was good with enough twists and turns to keep you interested. Lots of little Star Wars, Wars points were revealed, such as uh, Han Solo's name, his meeting with Chewbacca, a castle run and where he got his iconic blaster. I thought all that was good. The legendary card game where he, Han wins the Millennium Falcon from Lando is fun and entertaining. It was, it was a good, solid piece of work. Yes, it's a heist movie set in the Star Wars universe, but what's, what's wrong with that? Everyone I know who's seen it, and I do mean everyone I know who's seen mm. it, has loved it. And again, for me, the best line in the movie is, just did the Kessel run in 12 parsecs, if you round it down. <laughs> <laughs> From 30. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we've had a, a, a lot of... Um, feedback on this as well you know as you'd expect with such a high profile underperforming movie there's been a lot of talk on the internet our listeners have also commented on the film and here are some of their views <clears throat> paul nicholas says a reasonable effort which failed for me in the slightly contrived link to attempt to key into the whole star wars landscape it worked 
as a simple adventure film. I, I'm not denying that. <laughs> the, the, the production effects, script and cast all felt as though they fell a bit short of the recent Star Wars improvement. I thought Paul Bettany was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and I really hated the Tandy Newton character. Uh, I'm vindicated. I, I think Paul Bettany rang up um, Ron Howard and said, how do I get into a exactly, Star Wars yeah. film? And then, then, then he wrote the pr- part the for him. Yeah, and give me a little bit of cash. Yeah. Uh, and Phil Foster is, it says, despite a number of new interesting characters and a double-crossing crime heist story, the film never truly soars. I'd agree with that as well. It's a good, solid piece of work, but it's not, you know, it's not no. the Rogue One sort of no. type. All the constituent parts are intriguing or interesting in their own way, and it's certainly a lot of fun. But the wow factor isn't there. Perhaps there is an element of surprise loss, given that we know roughly how things pan out, but that never stopped Rogue One being a gripping film, and I'd agree with all of that. But I, I think at the end of the day... <laughs> This solo is going to be remembered for the failure, why it failed. Disney have turned around and said they're never going to hire new directors again. They're uh, not going to do any of the spin-off films. They've certainly put them all on hold. So there's been a major negative kickback. But, you know, being me, I'd like to end on a positive note. Yeah. And John Powell's music score is excellent. He combines John Williams' themes into the exhilarating style you use for How to Train Your Dragon, which is one of the best film scores of the century so far. Okay. Yeah, it's an entertaining summer film, and one which would have been forgotten very quickly, if not for the lessons it's taught Hollywood. In fact, this will be up there in the last 12 months, along the lines of Harvey Weinstein as a game-changer. Wow. Graham, your final words. Well, can I ask you a couple of questions? So, so what have they cancelled? Have they cancelled the Boba Fett movie? Boba Fett, Obi-Wan... Oh, all put on hold for the time being. Everything. Talk about panicking. Yeah. It was their fault. I mean, you saw the first trailer. That yeah. was awful. It yeah. said nothing. It gave you nothing. It just didn't hang together Mark- as a trailer. Marketing cock up, I think. There, there are rumours that high-profile heads are going to roll um, later in the year. We, we're waiting to see whether well, why that did happens. They, why did they put it out while well, uh, Infinity Wars and or Deadpool 2... Was still in cinema because ah. because of the arrogance that a Star mm. Wars films always make well, money. But all three Disney films out at the same time. Yeah, and you said, uh, so, you De- said Deadpool Two is not a Disney film. It's Fox. They haven't taken is. them over Apologies. yet. But you were saying that they're not going to hire any new Correct, new talent. But that that's crazy. If you look at what they're doing in the Marvel universe, I mean, if you look at Waititi's uh, yeah. Yeah. Ragnarok, you look at uh, Black Panther. Um, yeah, come on, Jeff. Who's the guy who directed Black Panther? He he's a joke. That was his oh, third movie. Kugler, wasn't it? Kugler, yeah. yes, Brian Kugler. Uh, That's his third movie, and yeah. it's like a multi. And also the yeah. um, Russo brothers for Avengers: Infinity War, all oh. young new talent, and yeah. that all worked. So That's there's something there's something wrong with their logic. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, you look. I mean, they, you know, uh, Marvel bring in Kenneth Branagh. Because they want to do Thor, but they want to do it in a Shakespearean mm. sort of way, so they bring him in for the first yeah. one, just to set that that ground in. John Farview um, is brought in for the first two Iron Mans. Oh, the, I'd forgotten that. They, yes, that's a good point. They yeah. Shane Black for yeah. the yeah. third one mm-hmm. because of his yeah. Little Weapon style of yeah. movies. So they're willing to take chances. It just seems that you know with Star Wars that they're not willing to. I suspect Ron Howard, unfortunately, will never work with them again. 
because that film flopped. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see where they go. I hope, and I love Lawrence Kasdan as a writer. 30 years ago as a director, he's fantastic, but he isn't there now. So I do hope that when they say they're going to work with more established directors, I'd like to see what that list is going to be. Yep. Now, if they're going to work with somebody like David Fincher, I'd be all in for that. Oh, yeah. But that would never, ever happen. But, yeah, but they've got this amazing franchise, and they're going to give it to boring people. Yes. Or, or safe, a safe, safe pair of hands. Safe, yeah. 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 Michael Bay. Oh, for crying out loud. Jeff, how drunk are you now? <laughs> Mark my words. Like, <laughs> bear in mind, Michael Bay's on the ascendant at the moment. What's Michael Bay produced this year? One of the most successful films. Uh, a load of shit. A Quiet Place. Is a <laughs> oh, no, that was, his fi- that was his film company. He didn't have anything to do with it. He's the pro- he was the overriding producer. He wasn't directing he it. He wasn't no, directing, he wasn't directing he wasn't it, but he had a, a lot to do with the decision-making. Yeah, we'll so come, Michael we'll come Bay. Back to, yeah, you know. we'll come back to that. Okay, we'll see. We'll yeah, see. okay. Right. So moving on to uh, my recommendations based on this uh, movie. So for Solo, I would recommend any of a number of great heist movies. So many to choose from. But my top five would be The Italian Job, uh, the original, not the terrible 2003 <laughs> remake. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Hang on, did I miss Vinnie Jones in Solo then? Yes. You did. He was on the planet Carilia. He played a brick shit house. <laughs> <laughs> was he? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> That'll probably get edited out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Inception uh, by director Doyle. Obviously. <laughs> Love that director. <laughs> Heat, Michael Mann's uh, seminal work and uh, film that I keep going back to is just wonderful. And The Usual Suspects. Oh, that excellent Kevin Spacey oh, film. God, I knew that the minute I said it. Right. For 2001, watch it again. 50 years later, it might surprise you. And every sci-fi film that comes after it. I do that. So I assume that that includes Jurassic Park and Jurassic World then? No. One or two, maybe. But no. And Contact. Yeah, see yes, how, yes, see absolutely. How good a proper ending can be. Good call. For Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the recommendations are Jurassic World, given if you want to follow this plot, Jurassic Park, the first and the best. It's a basic dinosaur crap. <laughs> Valley of Guanji, Cowboys what? Against Dinosaurs. What? Thank you, Ray Harryhausen, 1968. Okay, Lance, check it out. Yeah. Really? It's awesome. Okay, maybe. Okay. And then also from the 60s, One Million Years BC. It may not be factually correct. But Raquel's in it. That's true. (laughs) Raquel Welsh. Oh, there's one for the older gentlemen who are listening to this. (laughs) Yes. My my, my granddad told me about that. If there's anybody older than Jeff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And next, we're going to move on to what else we've been watching. Uh, This month, I've got a couple of movies, uh, three TV shows, and for a change of pace, a couple of comic books. I've really been enjoying these two movies. Uh, If you like violent, and I do mean violent, martial arts movies like The Raid and Raid 2, then you might like the 2016 Indonesian movie, Headshot. I've downloaded that one. I've got it ready. Take a Valium sandwich before you watch it. (laughs) A lot of the technical crew from the Raid movies were involved in this one. However, Headshot comes with a warning. It's incredibly violent. 
Uh, much less violent is Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Brilliant. Which I caught on Amazon Prime. Wonderful movie. Thanks, Jeff, for the recommendation. Fantastic. That really, really loved that. On TV, I've just started to watch the season finale. Uh, well, I've just watched the season finale of Marvel's Runaway on Sci-Fi in the UK. Uh, started well, but went downhill fast. Too much setup and not enough plot progression. Uh, it's been renewed for a second season, but it'll need to really pick up the pace to keep me watching. On Netflix, I've been watching the excellent Manhunt Unabomber. This is a mini-series tells the story of the FBI's hunt for the Unabomber in the 1990s. Oh, it's well-acted, great pacing, good solid plot. That's really. on my list to watch now. Yep. Uh, and finally, I am three shows into Cloak and Dagger on Amazon Prime. Very different superhero show. Strange pacing, I'm not sure about that. Quite slow, it's allowing a detailed character development. Uh, I'm very interested in where this is going. And then finally, uh, comics. Uh, in the comic universe, there's a new publisher in town called Aftershocks. Uh, they are doing some really interesting stuff. Two of their graphic novels I've really enjoyed over the last couple of years are Animosity and Dark Arc. Animosity is really weird. Uh, it's a story of a post-apocalyptic world where every animal on Earth suddenly becomes self-aware and has the ability to talk. This story follows a young girl and her faithful bloodhound. The entire story is dark and brooding. Uh, Talking of dark and brooding, the other comic, Dark Ark, is about the alternative to Noah's Ark. Noah fills his ark with animals, and the Dark Ark is built at the same time by the servants of Satan and is filled with all the creatures of evil. Naturally, with vampires and dragons in close proximity, the journey is not short on mischief, intrigue and action. (laughs) So. <laughs> that does sound good. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, for me, it's cinema, TV, and radio. Now, cinema's been a bit tricky this month. With the lead into the World Cup, we've just been crammed with blockbusters, and obviously, we reviewed a couple of them. And films like Book Club, which, to be honest, I have no interest in seeing. So, I usually try to see next week, aren't you? I'm going to try and watch it now because I'm actually in the drought season. I do need to watch something, so Book Club will probably be it next next time. Thank you, Neil. (laughs) I've used the time as well to catch up on a few films at home. The best of them, to be honest, and it surprised me, was Escape Plan. Throwback to 80s action movies starring Sly and Arnie. The setup of a prison in international waters has interest in political ramifications. The focus, however, is on the action. Well put together with Jim Cleveasel pretty much stealing the film as the over-the-top villain. For TV, has to be Barry on Sky Atlantic. Season one of a show which owes more than a passing nod to Gross Point Blank, although a bit darker. Barry is played by the almost deadpan Bill Hader, also one of the show's creators, is a hitman who has to go to Los Angeles for a target. There he gets involved with an acting school and gets in touch with his real self. Very dark, very funny, very L.A. Sometimes uncomfortably so. For me, the highlight has been the wonderful comic term from Henry Winkler. So good to see him back. Finally for radio, the day of the Triffids. I've caught up with the 1968 six-part radio series of John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Radio 4 Extra, thank you. This is by far the best and darkest version of the stories. Far better than the 1962 film version and all the TV versions that have followed. Thank goodness this wasn't one of the many radio and TV shows 
of the time that the BBC managed to destroy. I watched a very English scandal on BBC. It begins in the early 60s. Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw are excellent as Jim, Jeremy Thorpe and Norman Scott. A gay man, Thorpe was a brilliant politician, but with homosexuality being illegal in the UK until 1967, Thorpe seemed to mostly love the danger. Scott was an opportunist, or was treated badly by Thorpe, your choice, really. By the late 70s, the two end up in court. An excellent historical recreation and worth, worth, worth watching, if only for the court case and the judge's summation. Can I ask is, a question on this, Neil? Go on. Did they show the dog getting shot? Yes. Right, I'm in. <laughs> the judge's sum, summation is well worth it. Peter Cook did a fantastic one of it, version of it, and he's not far from the uh, actual just saying what the judge said. Uh, I revisited Push and A Knight's Tale. Why? Because they're enjoyable. Also, a South Korean film, The Villainess. Acts 1 and 3, brutal. Bits of Old Boy, another South Korean film, and with more twists than a corkscrew. A thriller with as much blood spilt as Kill Bill. A film in which it shares some common themes. The second act changes direction completely, and there's where the real heart of the movie is. Worth a watch. It'd be interesting to compare to Graham's suggestion, Headshot. As for next month, we're hoping to bring you another interview and Neil will be reviewing The Incredibles 2. Lucky devil. <laughs> Jeff will be reviewing Mary Shelley. It better not be horror. I don't think it is, is it? No, it's not. Cool. Uh, uh, would I lead you astray? Yes, always. All the time. Right. And Graham will be reviewing Tag, which I must admit I'm looking forward to as well. So, let's move on. After last month's quiz, Neil said to me, Jeff... You know I always look up to you, but can you please give a question this month that even I can answer? So you know I always listen to Neil, and yeah. I've listened to him throughout this show. Was that so when you, he was on the LSD? Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah. So here's something even he can answer. Now, the question's in two parts. Firstly, there are three quotes from movies, and you have to identify the films. Hey, guys, try to solve this without Google. Then the second fun part. <laughs> fun? You've got a weird way of having fun, Jeff. But well, never mind. There are two parts. Please, no more. Back to the quiz in the second part. When you've worked out the titles, what do all these films have in common? Now, good luck. Here are the quotes. So, quote one. Roads, where we go in, we don't need roads. Quote mm -hmm. two. And one more thing. What you choose to call a hell, he calls home. Mm -hmm. Number three. You see us as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Correct? That's the way we saw each other at 7am this morning. We were brainwashed. Good luck. Answer next time. Right. Thank you, Jeff. I got one of them, but um, I'm not sure <laughs> Two, I think. Oh, I'm doing very well. I, I, I am. Yeah, that's very true. Right. So, gentlemen, I think I can safely announce that's a wrap and another at the flicks is in the can so it only remains for us to say Sinoro in Barrett until next time goodbye for me and I'm off to watch England win the World Cup <laughs> <laughs> and for me it's come on England and then after the group stages come on Brazil <laughs> and a every... year of little faith I know I know those they did play well the other night <laughs> okay and to everyone else we'd like to say Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.